بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على رسوله الكريم نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد So today we're going to begin with our study of hadith number 32 This is the hadith of Abi Sa'id Sa'ad ibn Malik ibn Sinan al-Khudri radhi Allah ta'ala anhu أن رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم قال لا ضرر ولا ضرار. In this narration, this narration that consists of no more than uh, four words, the Messenger عليه الصلاة والسلام said لا ضرر ولا ضرار. There is no ضرر and there is no ضرار. Both of these terms ضرر and ضرار they mean harm. And inshallah ta'ala, we'll look as to if there is any difference between the two. And if there is, then what is the difference between them? La darar wa la birar. There is no harm. There is no darar and there is no birar. There is no harm. Shaykh Abdul Muhsin Abad, he said concerning this hadith, هذا الحديث مشتمل على قاعدة من قواعد الشريعة وهي رفع الضرر والبرار. This hadith, Consists of a qaida from the qawaid of Islamic legislation, from the foundational principles of Islamic legislation, and that is the removal of darar and dirar. Darar, which can be translated as harm, and dirar, which again can be translated as harm. So, is it the case that? They both in this particular hadith mean the same thing. What do they mean? Shaykh Abdul Muhsin Abad he brings a quote from Ibn Rajab al Hanbali rahimahullah ta'ala within which he mentioned different definitions or different explanations, different meanings that have been given concerning these two terms. There are those from the scholars that have said both of them mean the same thing. There are others that have said that they mean separate things. The khulasa of it, the summary of it, is that darar is the harm that occurs biduni qast, unintentional harm. Darar is the harm that occurs unintentionally and there are is the harm that occurs biqastin intentionally so after Sheikh Abdul Muhsin Abad he uh, he quotes that statement of Ibn Rajab al-Hanbali within which Ibn Rajab he says that essentially both of these matters darar and there are are matters that have been negated in the Sharia, they have been negated in the Islamic legislation, and it is something that has been made haram for a person to himself execute, haram for a person to do himself. Meaning, in the Islamic legislation, in the Islamic law, there is nothing within which that is harm to others. Are there exceptions to this? Yes, there are exceptions. We'll 
mention something related to that, to that in a minute. But generally speaking, there is nothing that is harmful for a person contained within the laws of Islam. And likewise, harming others, whether it's intention, intentional or unintentional, is not something that is permitted, is not something that is allowed. If it is the case that a person does so unintentionally, then obviously he is not penalized for it. If he does so intentionally, and therefore he performs dirar, then it is something that he could be penalized for by obviously the Islamic court system. Ibn Rajab, he then goes on to say that he said, فَإِمَّا إِدْخَالُ الضَّرَرَ عَلَىٰ أَحَدٍ بِحَقٍّ إِمَّا لِكَوْنِهِ تَعَدَّ حُدُودَ اللَّهِ فَيُعَاقَبْ بِقَدْرِ جَرِيمَتِهِ So we mentioned before that the general principle, the general rule of thumb is that there is no harm allowed to be practiced upon a person from the Islamic Sharia, from the Islamic law. However, as for harming someone because of a right, rightfully harming someone, either because that person has transgressed the laws of Allah or he's transgressed against himself or others, then he is penalized, he is punished in accordance to the degree of his crime. Again, the punishment occurs at the hands of the Islamic government. He goes through the standard judicial process in an Islamic court system. If it is the case that a person has done something that is considered punishable by the laws of Islam, then yes, in that particular situation, there's, there is an exemption. There is an exemption to the principle of la darar wa la dirar. There is no intentional or unintentional harm. There is an exception now. So for example, if somebody does commit the act of theft, if he does commit the act of theft, then it could be the case that when he goes through the judicial process, he is punished. There's a harm that he receives. But that's an exception to the general rule. Ibn al-Rajab, he then goes on to say, he said, So the thing that has been negated in the Islamic Sharia and the thing that has been made prohibited for the human being to practice is harming others and likewise, harming oneself without due right. And this falls into two categories. This can occur in two situations. Harming others or harming yourself without due right can occur in two situations. Number one. That the intent behind performing that harm, there is no intent behind it except harming him. You harm somebody, the actual intent behind it was nothing other than to harm that person. We'll give an example from what Shaykh Uthaymeen he mentions. An example of that is, for example, you have a neighbor. That neighbor of yours, you attach 
a motor or some machinery to your wall and you turn on the machine you turn on the the motor why so that it can cause inconvenience to your neighbor you have a motor you have a machine you attach it to your wall if you turn it on the sound is going to travel through the walls and it's going it's going to be uh, it's going to cause nuisance to your neighbors why did you do that the reason why you did that was not because you actually needed the motor the reason why you did that was for no other reason other than causing izaj causing nuisance causing inconvenience to your neighbor that is something that sheikh abdul muhsin abad he said is obviously something that is absolutely and totally prohibited and if that is taken to the courts then the person he could be penalized he could be punished why because he did so not because of any personal benefit he did it just to harm the neighbor so that's one surah that's one situation within which this darar this ilhaq al-darar lil ghair biduni haq this concept of harming others this practice of harming others without right can occur whereby a person harms others without any without his without benefiting himself essentially another example is back in the uh, jahiliya days before islam people would divorce their wife and then just before the idda period is finished what do they do remarry her and then divorce her again and then just before the idda period arrives remarry her again and they kept on doing that Huh? Hey, hey, what? As as though she, she 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 doesn't know where she's standing now. Divorces her, then brings her back. Why does he bring her back? Does he bring her back to re to you know be living with her in with love and mercy again? No. The intent behind that is al-haq al-darar, to harm her without receiving any benefit in that regard at all. It's just purely to harm her. And then the Islamic Sharia came with something that blocks that from happening. He divorces her, brings her back, divorces her again, brings her back, that's it, divorces her again. The marriage is finished. So the point being is that al-darar, when it is the case that it is used solely to harm the person, that is one surah, that is one form of darar, that is one form of harm, and that is something that has been prohibited. The second surah, the second scenario, is Ibn Rajab, he said, أَنْ يَكُونَ لَهُ غَرَضٌ آخَرٌ صَحِيحٌ The person does have a good intention behind the harm. He does have a good intention behind the action. أن يكون له غرض آخر صحيح مثل أن يتصرف في ملكه بما في بما فيه مصلحة له ويتعدى ذلك إلى ضرر إلى ضرر غيره. So for for example, a person he uses his wealth, he uses his merchandise in a manner that benefits him, but then that leads to harming others. Or, Ibn Rajab, he mentions another example. 
أو يمنع غيره من الانتفاع بملكه توفيرا له فيتضرر الممنوع بذلك أو for example the person withholds someone else from using their wealth from using their property in order to protect that property for him in order to protect that person's wealth for him however that person ends up being harmed by way of that so for example uh, a person Sheikh uh, Uthameen he mentions an example from what I recall So for example a person He withholds the wealth Of someone that is An orphan He withholds that wealth Even though Withholding that wealth from that orphan Is going to lead to him being Being harmed by that In that situation Even though the intention was good The intention was to preserve this wealth for this orphan So that later on when he grows up He'll be able to use that wealth uh, as, a, as a capital for his business for example he'll be able to benefit from it however right now that orphan is being harmed by you withholding that wealth from him in that particular situation it would not be permissible for a person to do so even though even though his intention behind that withholding was good and it was pure there was another example there was another example that the ulama have mentioned it is not coming to mind right now. That is another example. Perhaps later on in the lesson, if it comes to mind, then I shall I shall record, I shall bring it in Ta'ala. Tamam. Tamam. That hadith there that was Sheikh Abdul Muhsin Abbas' explanation to it, and point number two or part number two is a summary of the benefits. So the first point is is two points. First point is bayan kamal sharia wa husniha fi raf'i baradi wal idrar. In this hadith, it highlights the perfection of the Sharia, the perfection of the Islamic law, and its beauty, its goodness in removing darar and idrar, yani intentional harm and unintentional harm. And number two, anna ala al-Muslimi alla yadurra ghayrahu wala yudarrahu. Number two, that a Muslim, he shouldn't harm others i.e. harm them intentionally or unintentionally. Tamam. That is a summary of, that's a summarized explanation to this hadith. And unless anything needs clarifying or explaining, we'll move on to the next one. Tamam. Hadith number 33. It is the hadith of Ibn Abbas radiallahu ta'ala anhuma an Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam aqal لو يعطى الناس بدعواهم لدعى رجال أموال قوم ودماءهم لكن البين على المدعي واليمين على من أنكر. This narration within which the messenger عليه الصلاة والسلام said, if people were granted their claims, then men would end up claiming the wealth and blood of other people. If people were granted their claims, granted based upon just the mere claims that they make, 
then men would end up claiming the wealth and the blood of other people. However, the bayina, the bayina, the proof, the evidence is upon the mudda'i, is upon the claimant, ankar. And the oath is to be taken by the one who ankarred, who denies it, who denies the claim. So this hadith here, concerning it, Shaykh Abdul Muhsin Abad, his explanation is divided into four parts. Again, four brief parts. The first part is concerning the actual narration itself in terms of the chain of narration or the authenticity of it. That which has been established in the two sahihs is the first part of the hadith. When the messenger, or rather the part where the messenger والسلام, he said up to there if people were to be granted based upon their claims then men would claim the wealth and the blood of others up to there that is the narration that has been established in Bukhari wa Muslim as for the other part then that isn't found in that particular narration however its meaning is found in another narration recorded by Imam Bukhari wa Muslim it is the narration concerning Al-Ash'ath ibn Qais Al-Ash'ath ibn Qais was a companion and he was disputing with his cousin concerning uh, some land that existed within Yemen. So they were disputing concerning the land, who owns the land and what have you. So when Al-Ash'ath ibn Qais came to the Messenger والسلام, the Messenger said Bayyinatuka aw yaminuhu Okay, he said your bayyinah, your evidence or his yameen, his oath. That statement of the Prophet is similar in meaning to that which Imam al Nawi quotes here when he said, the Messenger said, Bayyina is upon the claimant, and the oath is to be taken by the one who denies. That there is identical in meaning with the statement of the Messenger alayhi salatu wasalam when he said to Al-Ash'ath ibn Qais Bayyinatuka o yaminuhu Your evidence, meaning you are the claimant, therefore you produce the, you produce the evidence o yaminuhu or it's upon him to take an oath because him, meaning your cousin he is denying the claim So point being that the narration that Imam al-Nawi collects here the narration that has been recorded by Imam al-Bayhaqi that narration, as far as the initial part of it, is actually found in the two sahihs, in the two sahihs of Imam Bukhari and Muslim. As for the wording of the second part of the uh, of the second part of the narration, then that wording isn't found in the narration of Bukhari and Muslim. However, the meaning of that narration 
is found in Bukhari or Muslim in the story of Al-Ash'at ibn Qayy. Wadih? Al-Ash'at ibn Qayy. Al-Ash'at ibn Qayy. Part number two is concerning the statement of uh, Ibn Daqiq al-Eid. Ibn Daqiq al-Eid, he's one of the scholars that explained the 40 hadith of Imam al-Nawi. He said, وَهَذَا الْحَدِيثِ أَصْلٌ مِنْ أُصُولِ الْأَحْكَامِ وَأَعْظَمُ مَرْجِعٍ عِنْدَ التَّنَازُعِ وَالْخِصَامِ This hadith is a foundational principle Concerning essentially qada, concerning qada, qada yani the Islamic judicial system, the Islamic, the principles of Isla, the Islamic court system, right? This hadith here, al-bayyinah ala al-mudda'i wal-yaminu ala man ankar. This is a principle upon which the Islamic court system is established. Look at that. Statement of the Messenger والسلام, consisting of a handful of words, yet upon it, the Islamic court system, the Islamic judicial system is established. Sheikh Abdul Muhsin Abad, he said, وَقَدْ بَيَّنَ النَّبِيُّ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ فِيهِ أَنَّهُ لَوْ أُجِيبَ كُلُّ مُدَّعٍ عَلَى غَيْرِهِ شَيْئًا لَأَدَّى ذَلِكَ إِلَى إِدْدِعَاءِ أَمْوَالِ النَّاسِ وَدِمَائِهِمْ This statement of the Messenger indicates that yes, it is allowed for you to make a claim. You can make a claim. If you want to make a claim against someone, if you want to make a claim against someone for having violated a right of yours, you can do so. However, if people were, made, were to be granted their claim, whatever they're claiming, if they were to be granted that claim, based upon the mere claim, then that would result in the rights of people being ruined. That would lead to chaos. People Who's, who, who, des, who, who do not deserve for their wealth to be taken, their wealth would be taken. People who don't deserve for their lives to be taken by the Islamic government, their lives would be taken. If it was the case that we were to just give people what they are asking for based upon, based upon their claims. لَكِنَّ نَبِيَ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهُ وَسَلَّمْ أَوْبَحَ مَا يَكُونُ فِيهِ الْفَصْلِ بَيْنَ النَّاسِ فِي ذَلِكَ وَهُوَ طَلَبُ الْبَيِّنَةِ مِنَ الْمُدَّعِي وَهِيَ كُلُّ مَا يُبِينُ الْحَقَّ وَيَدُلُّ عَلَيْهِ مِنْ شُهُودِ أَوْ قَرَائِنْ أَوْ غَيْرِهَا So the Prophet والسلام, rather than leaving it to the claims of people that people, if you claim something, you can have it rather than leaving it to that he والسلام, established the thing via which Fasl, via which a just and fair decision can be made between people. And that is that the one who's making the claim, he has to produce a bayyina. A bayyina is something via which the truth becomes manifest. A bayyina is something via which the truth becomes clear. Via which the truth becomes apparent. 
And that can occur via shuhud or qara'in. It can occur via witnesses. It can occur via factors. So for example, a person says that this hat that so-and-so is wearing, it belongs to me. If you make that claim that the hat that person B is wearing belongs to you, you are now called the muddai, the claimant. The one who is wearing this hat against whom you're making the claim, he is al muddaa alayhi. He is the one upon whom the claim is being made. Two people. al muddai wal muddaa alayhi. The claimant, meaning you, who says, that's my hat. And the muddaa alayhi, the one against whom you're making the claim. You, the muddai, the claimant, have to produce a bayina. You have to produce something via which the truth can become clear, can become manifest. That can either be by witnesses. So for example, you say that the hat that person B is wearing, that is mine. And so-and-so, as well as so-and-so, witnessed him taking it off my head. I have shuhud now. I have witnesses now. Or there'll be qara'in. There may be factors indicating it. There may be some type of evidence indicating it. Strongest evidence is al-iqrar. Strongest evidence, the ulama, they say, is the person, the mudda'a alayhi, the one against whom the claim is being made, admitting it. He says, yes, you know what? The hat that I'm wearing on my head, I took it from him. I took it from him. Khalas, he's made iqrar, qudhi al-amar. The case is closed now. He has made iqrar, that is the strongest factor. Or perhaps you have other factors, you may have the receipt. You may have the receipt for that particular hat that you purchased, and so on and so forth. So the point being is that if somebody comes with a claim, then it isn't the case that he's granted whatever he's claiming based upon the mere claim. Rather, he has to produce the evidences. What about the mudda'a alayhi? What about the one against whom the claim is being made? What does he have to do? The one, that, the one upon whom the claim is being made, if it is the case that he is saying, no, this hat does not belong to him, this is mine, then he has to make hajj. He has to take an oath. He has to say, I swear by Allah, this hat does not belong to him. This hat does belong to me. And I swear by Allah for doing And I swear by Allah in that regard. If that mudda'a alayhi, the one upon whom the claim has been made against, does so, khalas, that's it. Case is closed. Why? Because no evidence has the mudda'i, the claimant, brought forth. His evidence is very, very weak. His evidence is nothing other than the claim. Whereas the mudda'a alayhi, the one upon whom the claim is being made, his evidence is strong already. What's his evidence? Al-Zahir. That which is apparent is his evidence. Meaning the hat is on his head. And the ada is that if the belonging is in your possession, if that merchandise is in your possession, then you are the owner of it. 
you are the you are the possessor of it if it is the case that you have a wallet in your pocket and the wallet has 100 200 pounds inside of it then the ada that which is customary is that that wallet is yours and that 100 pound is yours why because that which is we judge people based upon the zahir based upon what is apparent so his evidence already by default is qawi it is strong and the evidence of the claimant is weak because his evidence his evidence is nothing other than a claim so therefore for the, for it to be balanced out the mudda'i the claimant has to bring an evidence which is strong those evidences could therefore be witnesses those ev those evidence could likewise be qara'id factors a receipt for example or he says that the wallet that he has in his pocket is black and it has a zip to it and uh, 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 the 100 pound that is with inside of it the 30 pound uh, amount consists of six five pound notes now he is giving qara'in he's giving factors factors which the qadi factors which the judge will use in order to deliver his verdict on the matter right so because at the initial stage the strength of evidence with the claimant is weak he has to produce more evidence strong evidence and because the strength of evidence with the mudda'a with the one against whom the claim is being made is already strong all he has to do is make an oath all he has to do is make a oath the evidence is strong with him why because he, it's in his possession already the mobile phone is already in his possession you're saying this is this is your mobile phone but it's in my pocket I already possess it and everybody knows that if somebody is apparently possessing something and that's his you have to now bring some evidence strong evidence that contradicts that which is Zahir is that clear the point being that this is a principle then that is employed in the Islamic judicial system by the judge when he is delivering his verdicts he looks at who is the claimant okay he's the claimant who is the one against whom the claim is being made okay he is the one against whom the claim is being made what is the claim okay and now what I want you to do person a is produce your evidence if you're not going to produce your evidence then all person B has to do is make an oath once he's made the oath however if it is the case that the the one against whom the claim is being made refrains from taking an oath refuses to take an oath then what happens what do you do in that, what does the judge do in that situation what does this narration indicate huh case done mean in whose favor huh? the claimant in the favor of the claim there is more detail to it and there's difference of opinions and what have you but that which Sheikh Abdul Muhsin Abad is mentioning here is that generally speaking you make a claim against somebody 
you don't have the evidence the one against whom you're making a claim is asked by the judge to take an oath the one against whom the claim has been made refuses to take an oath and therefore it is judged that he uh, has failed to testify he has failed to testify in court he has failed to testify so that is essentially the, there's some more detail to it but generally speaking that is the uh, rule of thumb again the, the, the judge will not the judge will not merely look and there, are, there, may, there may be other factors there may be other factors also which results in the judge making his decision right so generally speaking a person brings a claim the judge looks at the claim and what have you he says produce your evidences but there may be situations where the judge does not even look at your evidence your claim is rejected from the beginning you come and you make a claim if it is the case that the claim goes against aql goes against reason then the judge he may reject your claim so for example you come along and you say that oh judge this man here yeah, and you're wanting to uh, uh, this man here I am his father even though you're 30 years old and he is 50 years old you does it go against does it go does it coincide with reason or does it contradict reason contradicts reason are you allowed to make a claim for things that you feel that you do, your right has been transgressed and you Islamically, you're, you're allowed to. You're allowed to make a claim. If somebody steals your money, you can make a claim against him in an Islamic court system. You can do that. But the judge can reject your claim if it goes against al-aql. How is it possible for so-and-so to, to, uh, 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 to be your son when you're 30 years old and he's 50 years old? Okay? Likewise, the judge, he can reject the claim if it goes against al-adah. If it goes against what is known, a poor man comes to the judge. He says, oh judge, this man here, and the man that he's pointing towards, is a man that is well known to be wealthy. He's a wealthy person, and you are the poor person. Oh Qabi, oh judge, this man here, this rich man, I gave him a, 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 a dane, a, a loan of 20,000 pounds I gave him a loan of 20,000 uh, pounds last week and he hasn't repaid me and he's, not, he's saying he's not going to repay me the judge can reject the claim why? because you, everybody knows that you're a poor man you're not a rich man anyhow to have 20,000 pounds in your possession this man is a multi-billionaire what's he going to do with 20,000 pounds? so now the judge can reject it the only exceptional situations where he can accept the claim and then proceed forth is if there is some type of official records that may indicate that he has given the person 20,000 pounds. Likewise, the judge can reject a claim that goes against al-his, goes against what a person can perceive. You come to the court and you say, so-and-so, he gorged out my eye. He gorged out my eye. 
the judge looks at you and your eye is still there. Totally in fine working order. Your eye is still there. How do you mean it gorged out your eye? It goes against hell-his. It goes against what I can perceive. I can see. Ah. Likewise, a judge, he cannot consider your claim. He can reject your claim. If it is the claim that your if it is the case that your claim you khalif al-shara' if your claim goes against Islamic law. So for example, you come to the court and you say, I'm making a claim against this person. This person is not allowing me to get that bottle of wine that his father left in the inheritance. The father said that so-and-so can inherit a bottle of wine from me. Father dies, the son says to the claimant, you can't have a bottle of wine. I'm not going to buy a bottle of wine for you from my father's inheritance. I'm not going to do it. So you say, okay, takes him to the court. The qadi, he can reject the claim. He's not even going to ask him for the evidence. He's not even going to look into the claim. Why? Because the claim, you khalif al Because the claim goes against the sharia. It goes against Islamic law. In that khamar, a bottle of wine is something that is prohibited. And so on and so forth. So the point being, is that that is the general rule of thumb. The judge, he looks, he asks the claimant to produce his bayina. And likewise, if he doesn't, then he asks the one against whom the claim has been made to make half, to take an oath. If it is the case that no evidence is produced and no uh, and half is made, then al-amr, the case is closed. If it is the case that no evidence is produced and likewise uh, no half is made, no oath has been taken, then it is understood that the one against whom the claim was made has failed to testify and thus the judge, he can make his decision based upon that. The point being is that that is the general rule. But however, as we've mentioned, there is more detail to it. It isn't just a short and fast rule where someone's making a claim. He comes up to uh, some Islamic studies teacher and he says, Brother, so-and-so, he took my wallet uh, and I want you to judge in the matter. It's not as simple as that. There is a general rule of thumb, but there is more factors involved. And that is why you can't just go to يعني, an ustad or an Islamic studies teacher and say, Akhi, can you please uh, give us a ruling concerning this matter of ours? It's not as simple as that. Al-Qada, passing rulings is uh, in matters of hukuk and rights. It's something that is big. It's not the case that a person just graduates with a degree in, in Islamic, in a Sharia, in Islamic law, and khalas, he can just go on to mm, passing rulings concerning hukuk between people. Just because a person is a teacher of Islamic studies don't, doesn't mean that, you can, that he can go and start passing rulings and that he's approachable and that you can just go up to him and say, uh, can you give me the ruling? Why can't you give me the ruling? You're an Islamic studies teacher. It doesn't work like that. Yeah, and even in the Islamic countries, person who graduates in Sharia, he graduates in a degree of Islamic law, after that, it, it is not possible for him to become a Qadi, to become a judge. He still has to continue with his studies. He'll have to do a master's in a certain field. 
you have to go and study an actual diploma of qada of uh, judiciary of islamic judici judicial law you have to study that not just that the one who's given the post of qada the one that's given the post of being a judge he's selected based upon what based upon just his knowledge of islamic law no that are, huh? of firasa you know firasa 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 is uh, I, I forgot what the english translation of it but i'll describe it to you firasa is this intuition uh, insight yeah an intuition that's a better word intuition insight and intuition that type of meaning whereby a person he can he, he has a knack he has a knack of being able to work out what's happening here he has a knack of being able to tell what is right here what's wrong here who's right who's wrong what what's the background behind this case there is this firasa that they have they can see certain things that you can't not to say that they have knowledge of the ilm al-ghayb but just a certain intuition an example of that is Suleiman alayhi salam Suleiman alayhi salam he had to make qada he had to pass an Islamic ruling concerning what? what did he have, have to pass an Islamic ruling about? I'm mentioning it like this because it's a well-known case the case of the I'll give you a clue the two women two women what happened? The two women came with a child, didn't they? Yes, that's right. The, bo both women are claiming this is my baby. So what did Suleiman do? Huh? He said, we'll cut the baby in two halves. We'll cut the baby in two halves and then you can have one half and the other woman can have the other half. What happened? The real, the real mother screamed. The real mother said, no, 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 it's not my baby. She can have it. She can have the baby. Ah, what does Suleiman do? He then issues the verdict in favor of her, of the, in favor of the woman that was screaming and saying, no, 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 it's not my baby. Why? Ah, firasa, that intuition, that insight that he had, that the woman who's going to end up screaming, the woman that's going to end up saying, no, 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 take, she can take the baby. It's not my baby. She must be the real mother. She must be the, the real mother. Why did he do? Yani based upon what? Based upon intuition, firasa. Based upon this firasa that he had. So the point that we're trying to make here is that just because a person has, uh, just because a person is an Islamic studies teacher does not mean that he can Pass rulings it does not mean that you can go up to him and start asking questions related to hukuk between people and what have you. And if he refuses to answer, if he says, I don't know, that you say, What do you mean you don't know? How can you don't know? You have to give me the answer. Da, 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 da. You can't do that. Why? Because the matter is very, very weighty. You're issuing a ruling concerning hukuk bain al adamiyin. You're issuing a ruling between, between, between human beings, rights of people. You're going to be asked, you're responsible for the, for, the, for the verdict that you deliver, for the advice that you impart. So therefore, it's not a small thing. Uh, that is one important matter that had to be mentioned. Tamam, third point, third part that Sheikh Abdul Mahsin Abad, he mentions, is 
وكما أن المدع وكما أن مد وكما أن المدعى عليه وكما أن المدعى عليه البينة فيما يدعيه فيما يدعيه من الأمور الدنيوية وكما أن المدعي عليه البينة فيما يدعيه من الأمور الدنيوية فإن على المدعي على فإن على فإن على المدعي البينة في الأمور الأخروية just as it is upon the claimant to produce evidence concerning worldly matters then in a similar similar manner it is upon the claimant to produce evidence concerning matters related to the akhirah meaning your deen just as it is the case that if you're going to make a claim against a person because of dunyawi matters worldly matters money and so on and so forth honor honor is inclusive inclusive of it just as you have to produce evidence for claims that you make against someone in worldly matters likewise there is an evidence that is to be produced concerning religious matters what does this mean meaning if a person claims to love Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala claims that what he is doing is righteous there has to be evidence for it there has to be evidence for it so for example if it is the case that a person claims to love Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala yet you find him contradicting the messenger alayhi salatu wasalam then we say produce your evidence for this action of yours you are saying that you claim Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala yet we find that you engage in the example that I give all the time Al-Mawlid al-Nabi in the celebration of the birthday of the Prophet produce, produ produce your evidence that this is something that is legislated otherwise you're going against your claim because if it is the case that you love Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then you must follow the messenger alayhi salatu wasalam and thus we have the ayah. Thus we have the ayah. قُلْ إِن كُنْتُمْ تُحِبُّونَ اللَّهِ فَاتَّبِعُونِي يُحْبِبْكُمُ اللَّهِ Say, if you love Allah, then follow me. Say, O Muhammad, if you people truly love Allah, then follow me. Follow Muhammad alayhi salam. Then Allah will love you. This ayah, the salah they said concerning this ayah, that a group of people, a people claim to love Allah And thus Allah, He ended up testing them with this ayah This ayah is known, the, as, is known as the ayah of Al-Mihna, the ayah of testing uh, If someone claims to love Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Then the test, the yardstick by which it is determined whether they love Allah or not is whether that person truly follows Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. So Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam, he told us about Allah. He told us about the nature of Allah. He told us about the names of Allah. He told us about the attributes of Allah, and he left at that. He never went into philosophizing about the names and the attributes of Allah. So he related to us the statement of Allah: "Ar-Rahman ala al-Arsh istawa, the ever merciful rose above his arsh, establishing that Allah jalla wa ala." 
performed the action of rising and never did he alayhi salatu wasalam delve into what do you mean by rising above the arsh and never did we find the companions inquiring about one minute ya rasulullah allah says ar-rahman ala al-arsh istawa the ever merciful rose above the arsh we human beings we rise we go above things so what does that mean? It's causing, it's causing us problems now. What do you mean? What's the meaning? They never did that. They knew that what rising meant. And they accepted that. And they never inquired. You never find one ayah where, the, where Allah Jalla wa ala says, يَسْأَلُونَكَ عَنِ istiwa. There's no ayah in the Quran where it says, they, meaning the companions, ask you, O Muhammad, about al-istiwa, about Allah rising above the arsh. You find no ayah like that. There is no ayah within which it says, يَسْأَلُونَكَ عَنْ, عن سَمْعِ اللَّهِ There is no ayah within which it says, they ask you about the hearing of Allah. There is no ayah within, it, within which it says, يَسْأَلُونَكَ عَنْ وَجْهِ اللَّهِ They ask you, O oh Muhammad, about the face of Allah. Because they've come across a verse which, which says that Allah has a face. And so they say, oh, Ya, ya Rasulullah, how is this possible? Human beings have a face, how can Allah... There's no eye, there's no eye like that. Why? Because the companions, they heard these ayat, they believed in these ayat, they accepted these ayat, and they never ever inquired about the meaning of these ayat. They asked about wabuti, they asked about the, 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 the crescents, they asked about those things that were beneficial for them, within which there was some type of tangible benefit. As for these things, they never asked. Centuries later, people emerged who started to, in their brains, in their minds, liken Allah to the creation. They came across a verse within which it said, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has a face. Ah, immediately they started to compare Allah to the creation, liken Allah to the creation. So they said, that's not possible. We're just going to give it an allegorical meaning. So the one who adopts that method, the one that adopts that methodology of going against the way of the Prophet, going against the way of the companions, in inquiring about the meaning of the sifat of Allah, then he is someone that has opposed the Prophet of Allah and therefore opposed this ayah within which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has said, if you truly love Allah, then follow the Prophet. Did the Prophet والسلام, ever say, what do you mean? By rising above the arsh. What do you mean by face? What do you mean by hand? Or did he leave it at that? He left it at that. Knowing what yad means. Knowing what hand means. Knowing what rising means. Knowing what face means. Leaving at that. And knowing that nothing is comparable to Allah. So the face of Allah is more beautiful and more greater than anything that we can imagine. He alayhi salatu wasalam, That was his manhaj. That was his methodology. So therefore the one who truly claims to love Allah. He will be following that, that methodology. Otherwise, if it is the case that a person has adopted one of the paths of the philosophers, then that indicates what? That indicates that a person isn't truly loving Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as a result of him not having followed uh, the Prophet alayhi salatu wasalam. Tamam. What we'll do next week, inshallah ta'ala, is we'll complete our study of this, uh, of this text, of this hadith, and then inshallah ta'ala, we'll move on to the next narration.
Allah Ta'ala a'lam wa sallallahu ma'ala nabina Muhammad walhamdulillahi rabbil alamin.